from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. What is your greatest need? Right? Saturday night, we're sitting in the house. Actually, let me back up the story to about 6 o'clock. I'm making dinner, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I just pause. The, the lights flicker. And sometimes some of the belief, if you pretend it didn't happen, it didn't really happen. <laughs> and so I was like, nope, 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 nope. They, it, it didn't flicker. About three minutes later, uh, nope, nope, didn't flicker. <laughs> you know, I can't see it. It's not happening, right? And so everything goes, we, I get dinner done, we get the dishwasher loaded, get the dishes washed and dry, you know, I was like, all right, all right good, we're, we're going to make it. And then about nine o'clock, it wasn't even a flicker, it just, psh, dark. <laughs> it was just, it, it just, it just went out. And so I was like, okay, yeah, we lost power, you know, and I'm going, hey, you know, it could be a whole, whole lot worse. You know, I'm mindful of what the people of Florida are going through, so I'm like, okay, it's not too bad. Uh, they'll get us back on sometime. So the next morning, I'm out. I'm walking the dog, and I just I just turn to look down the road. And you have to understand we're at the, we're we're at a dead end. And so there's a road right before us, just a dirt road. And so from the dirt road to us, there's a curve, and you can't really see around the curve unless you get way in. So I walk. I'm walking the dog, and I look down. And I'm like, huh? Tree down and a power pole in the middle of the road. Okay, it's gonna be a little bit longer now. You know, I, I told him, I was like, uh, we'll get power back around Monday. And we got it back last night. Thank you, Energy United and the crew from Charlotte who drove up to fix our power. Um, but, you know, if anybody had asked me yesterday, Gary, what's your greatest need? Well, greatest need is I need electricity. You know, let, let's be honest. We've lived with electricity so long in power. When we lose it, we don't know what to do, you know. And, and so greatest need was electricity. Now, yesterday, your greatest need might not have been electricity. You, you may have said it was, it was something else. And interesting about that question is, your greatest need come this Friday might be different than what your greatest need is right now. When we talk about what our greatest need is, it's a moving target. It seems like our greatest need changes as the day changes, as the environment changes, as our jobs change, as our life changes, as our family changes, as something changes externally to us, our greatest need becomes something else. So really, we can never look back in our life because greatest means there's only one. There can't be three greatest, right? That, that's the whole point. There, there's only the greatest. Our greatest need changes, but if it changes, it means that that was never our greatest need. So what if there is a greatest need that we have? What if the greatest need we have is something that is common to all of us? Not just us individually on a specific day, but our greatest need is all of our greatest needs. It's the same need that we all have, whether we're here this morning or watching online or whether we're not here or whether we lived a hundred years ago or a thousand years. What if our greatest need is the same? What would that greatest need be? Now, you know that we're in John chapter 6. We're talking about Jesus, and I know many of you are going, well, Jesus, he's our greatest need. And the answer is yes, that is absolutely correct. 
However, when we come to John chapter 6, we've got to dig a little bit to see that. Because when we come to John chapter 6, which, by the way, is the longest chapter in the Gospel of John, you are very familiar with the first two stories in John chapter 6. You know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know the story of Jesus walking on water. But the question as we read those stories is, what truth are they actually conveying? And as we study John chapter 6 this morning, we're going to see that. To see that it's pointing to us something beyond just the, wow, wasn't it neat that Jesus did that? Because sometimes I think when we read the feeding of the 5,000, that's all we walk away with. And if that's all we walk away with, we've missed what God's Word is trying to teach us. This is what John writes in chapter, uh, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, down to verse 21. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each man to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to, to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so that the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that they had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this morning, as we walk through this, let's look at the first miracle. Let's look at Jesus miraculously feeding the crowd. When we ended chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and now John gives us an indefinite period of time and says Jesus now is returned to Galilee. Specifically, he is near the Sea of Galilee, and he has gone over, it tells us, to the other side. So if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, he would be on the eastern side of of that sea. John also tells us this, it is Passover, the feast of the Jews is at hand. That's become important in the latter part of John chapter 6, but it's kind of preparing us for where John is going. So John is kind of setting the stage and he's saying that Jesus is there 
And Jesus is going up to the mountain, which is kind of interesting. It tells us that this is a place that was known to Jesus and the disciples. We're not entirely sure which mountain, but he's going up to the mountain. And as he is going up there, we're told that he is going to spend time with and teach his disciples. All right, so he's going up to the mountain. It tells us there's a grassy place in just a minute. So imagine the the mountains there aren't quite like the mountains here, right? I mean, they're not huge mountains, but they're kind of rolling and got some level places. So Jesus is going up there, sit down. He's going to teach his disciples, but there's a problem. And here's the problem. The problem is that Jesus has an audience. Look at what it says in verse 2. A large crowd was following him. A large crowd was following Jesus. Why? Why was the crowd following him? Well, they're following him because Jesus is curious. He's a curiosity to them. They have seen Jesus heal the sick, right? So they're following him because they're seeing Jesus do all these miracles and healings, and they see Jesus like a, a genie in the bottle that's just come and, and is healing them, and, and they want to they see more. When you read the, the, the verse, it, it more accurately would be, the large crowd kept following Jesus because they continually saw the signs Jesus constantly did. So it's not... That, right, remember, John just recorded a few signs. But he also tells us that Jesus did a lot of signs. And here we're told that Jesus is doing a lot of signs. He had compassion on, so he's healing their sick. And, and the people, the crowd, are amazed because they hadn't been able to get well. Their, their children are, are healed. Maybe their, their sister is healed, their brother, their mom. People are being healed. And they're like, you know what? I just I want to see more of this. I want to see more. This, this is amazing. Which again brings us to the question, when you go to look for Jesus, what are you looking for? Here the crowd is, is, is looking just to see a, a miracle worker. Right? They, they just want to see another miracle. It's amazing. They've never seen anything like it. They're having trouble connecting the dots though. They, just, they want to see another miracle. So they're following Jesus to see what he's going to do next. So Jesus is up there. He looks and he, he sees the crowd. It's starting to get laid. And he looks up and he, he, he sees this large crowd coming to him. And he's moved by compassion. So he looks at Philip and he's going to ask Philip a question. And he's asking Philip to test Philip. Now, interesting, Philip is from Bethsaida, which is where they're near. So I think it's part of a test for Philip because Philip knows the lay of the land. So he looks at Philip and says, hey, Philip, there's a whole bunch of people here. Where are we going to buy bread? They need to eat. We need to feed them, Philip. Where are we going to go buy bread? It's getting late. The people haven't eaten. They need to eat. Now, again, this is another concept that is foreign to us today. Just like being without power is foreign to us. We can't contemplate living more than a day without power. We can't contemplate it being evening, being hungry, and not being able to satisfy that need. Because even if it's 3 a.m. in the morning, you can go somewhere, even in, in Walnut Cove, as small as it is, you can go somewhere and you can find some place that is open that has food and buy something, even if it's just a pack of naps. We have no concept 
of not being able to obtain food at any time that we want. Food that is already prepared and already made. In this part of the country, this, this wasn't Jerusalem, this wasn't the posh capital, but even then in the middle of the night you have trouble finding food. This was a place where it is mostly agrarian, it is mostly subsistence farming and living. And so they would get up in the morning and they would make bread. And you know what would happen if the bread ran out in the evening and it was still four hours to go before you went to bed? You know what happened? You went to bed hungry. Right? You know, you know I, I like making bread. I enjoy it. Praise the Lord, I got a bread machine. <laughs> right? So I just put it in there, press a button, and the dough comes out. Then I toss it in the oven. I don't have to knead it. I don't have to make it. I don't have to do all that. And if it runs out, you know what I can do? I can toss some more stuff in the bread machine. I can make another loaf of bread. They can't do this. There's nowhere to go. It's barren. It's a desolate place. There is no 7-Eleven on the corner. And Jesus looks up, and there's a lot of people there. It says there's at least 5,000 men. And when it says men, it, it means men, not counting women and children. And if you do the math, if you just run some really simple numbers and say there's 5,000 men and half of those were marriageable age and they were married and, and they had one kid, it is really quickly to go from 5,000 men to nine to 11,000 people very, very quickly without stretching the parable to say there was 100,000 people on the hill, right? We don't need to do that. But legitimately, you can get to nine to 11,000 people quickly. How are they going to feed all of these people? Think about how hard it is to feed 30 people at Thanksgiving. Right? We talked about disaster relief there in Florida. They could prepare 20,000 meals a day. I think they have capacity for 30,000. Right now they're running at 20, preparing 20,000 meals a day. And that's with electricity. That's with their generators. That's with, in a lot of cases, food that's already been prepared. They're not making the bread that goes on the hamburger buns. they just using the buns. Right? It, it, it's, it's a huge problem that needs to be solved. The people are hopeless or helpless. Ask Philip, Philip, what are we going to do? Philip looks at him and says, Jesus, I got nothing. Even if I had 200 denarii, which is about uh, one denarius is a day's wage. He says, even if I had about eight months of wages, I don't think I can buy enough bread, not to mention the fact there's no place that has that much bread. What are we going to do? Jesus is bringing them to the point to get them to understand that they are helpless. That there's nothing that they can do. So into this situation comes Andrew, right? Andrew is always bringing some, somebody to Jesus. right? Andrew brought Peter. Now he's bringing a boy who has his happy meal of two fish and five loaves. Right? And, and here comes this, this, this little boy and... I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to shatter a Bible picture for you again. All right. This little boy comes riding up on a donkey. No. <laughs> I know a lot of times that Bible stories are depicted in art, right? And, and so I was writing this, and I, I, I know what the kid is bringing. So I, I was curious. We, when we taught our kids Bible, we used these flashcards. Some of y'all have seen them. We brought them to VBS. So I was like, all right, I, I want to go see this, the, the picture, how it was depicted in flashcards. And sure enough, it was exactly what I thought. 
The boy that they depict in the flashcards is like a young teenage boy. The actual words in here indicates a, a young boy, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine, not, not a teenager. And I, I looked at how, what the boy was bringing, and sure enough, the boy has a basket. Let me ask you a question. Is the eight-year-old going to have a basket? No. And in that basket are the most beautiful French baguettes you have ever seen in your life. And they're laying right next to these giant salmon that this kid just happened to have. He's got French baguettes and raw fish. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that's what the kid had? No. <laughs> John tells us he had barley bread, which is the bread of the poor. Y'all remember those gosh awful rice cakes of the fad like years and years ago? They were probably about that size and probably tasted about that good. So this kid's got five pieces of bread about like this. The fish that he has is fish jerky. He's going to have some dried fish. Right? Well, why, why ain't he going to have fresh fish? Because it's going to smell, it's going to be rotten. <laughs> All right? He's going to probably have some dry fish. If you're going out for a day, you're not taking huge loaves of bread and, and fresh fish that you're going to have to fillet and cook. This is what the kid has. It's not enough for an adult male. It could maybe, you know, knock the hunger off him, but for anybody else, it's just going to kind of get rid of the hangry and just, you know, I'm all right for the moment. Again, they're helpless. There's nowhere to buy bread. There's, there's all these people. The, the kid doesn't have enough food. The disciples are looking around going, what are we going to do? There's, there's no amount of human intervention that is going to solve this problem. Yet Jesus can solve it. The disciples fail to realize who Jesus is. They fail to realize the power that he has. They don't know who was standing there in front of him. So Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks. Notice he doesn't bless it. He gives thanks. Subtle but important distinction. An old Jewish or common Jewish blessing is, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from earth. What, what, what is Jesus doing? He's He's giving thanks for the bread and bringing forth bread from earth. He, I mean, he's literally fulfilling what that prayer says. And then he does the same with the fish. And he, and he says, after this, he says, look, take it and distribute to those who are in need. This is one that I want to put on DVD playback in heaven. Because me being logistical, I want to see the logistics of this. Did just a mound of food appear in front of Jesus and they just like take the pieces? You, you, you know, did they have, you know, a, a basket that they were using and as they handed food out, the food just never disappeared like the, the widow with the oil, who the, the oil just never disappeared. How, how, how did the, this, this is me, okay, I know it's, it's silly, but logistically speaking, how did the miracle take place? You, you know, <laughs> I want to know what, what happened. But however it happened, everyone there who had been following Jesus for a sign saw another sign. They saw him take those five loaves 
and those two fish and give thanks and feed everybody there, it says, in much as they wanted. So not even just a little bit of, of the boy's snack to make them feel better, as much as they wanted. And subsistence life where maybe they didn't sit down to a meal every day and eat as much as they wanted, right there on the hill with Jesus, they ate as much as they wanted. And they became witnesses to the sign. It says, verse 14, they saw the sign. They understood. They, they saw the miracle. They knew that it was a miracle. All right, so that's miracle number one. Miracle number two, Jesus walks on the water. A another miracle. The disciples are there. It's getting late. It's dark. Jesus is not with them. It says that Jesus has gone back up to the mountain. He's going to, to pray, and so he withdrew again by himself. The disciples are down on the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to get in the boat, and they're going to start across to Capernaum. Now, a little bit of information about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, interestingly enough, is the, the second lowest, meaning below sea level, lake in the world number one is the dead sea all right the difference between the dead sea and the sea of galilee is the dead sea is salty and the sea of galilee is fresh water that's why you can fish the sea of galilee you can't fish the dead sea also it has a unique topography in that it's surrounded by these mountains and so the winds will come down the mountains and and blow out on the lake and making the lake very treacherous and so it'd be easy for you to set out in its fairly calm waters and get out into the lake and be very choppy. And it's not a big lake. It, it, it's, it, it's about 13 miles north to south and about 8 miles east to west. So you could get in the boat, and if it was a nice day and the winds were not against you, you could row from one side to the other. You could put up your sail and get from one side to the other fairly quickly. If you're an experienced fisherman, like some of the disciples were, you know how to navigate the lake. You know how to sail. You know how to get across. And so they jump in their boat, and it's going to be like just any other time that they cross the sea. They're in their boat. They're crossing the sea. And then all of a sudden, verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So there's this wind against them, and they only rode about three or four miles. So they're maybe halfway across the lake. The, the lake has become choppy, and if you've ever tried to be in a boat in choppy waters, you know the difference between waters that are choppy and waters that are calm. It just it's If the waters are choppy, it's just miserable. Your going is, is slow because as you go one way, the waves push you back the other way. And they don't have an Evinrude on the back of their boat, Right? They, they got to do this by wind or by oar. And they're not making any progress. And they're sailors. They're fishermen. They, know, they would know how to get the boat across. And they can't do it. It'd be frightening. Right? I mean, the, the lake would turn up good squalls, good waves. And if you're in a 12-foot boat, wooden boat, that, that, that can go over pretty easily. So here they are. Again, imagine, they're trying, they're doing their best, they can't make any progress, and then all of a sudden, they look, and it says that as they look out, in verse 19, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. So they look out, and, and here is Jesus walking on 
the water. And this instills fear in them. It says that they were frightened. Now, real quickly, don't conflate two stories that are very similar. Okay, there is another story where Jesus is in the bottom of the boat asleep. The disciples are up top. Again, a storm rages, and they become afraid of the storm. They go down and wake Jesus up. Right? Read this again. And coming near the boat, they were frightened. What are they frightened out? What brings fear into their lives? It's the sight of Jesus walking on the water. It's not actually the conditions of the lake. They're afraid because, once again, they see the power of Jesus. They are confronted face-to-face with deity. And I think every now and then we get glimpses like this into the disciples' lives where we see that they are just overwhelmed when they realize who Jesus actually is. And this is one of them. They're, they're, They're just overwhelmed. Why? People can't walk on water. They have sailed that lake. They have fished that lake their entire lives. None of them have walked on water. Right? I know right now you can go on YouTube or wherever you watch videos and you can see people walking on water. And there's a common theme to these people walking on water. One of two things happen. Either they've set up these little buckets and they're able somehow in great dexterity, and I'll give them credit for dexterity, be able to step on this bucket that's got water and this bucket that's got water and they kind of run across the buckets. But there's only four or five buckets and then they get to the end. Or they do this out in the lake and they take five or six steps and you know what happens at step seven. <laughs> they go down. Right? We, just, we, we can't walk on water. I don't care how cool the video looks or how many steps you can take, you're not walking on water. Right? It, the hurricane just came through in Florida. You, you know, if people could walk on water, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to be, this is not a disrespectful comment, but if they could walk on water, they could have, some of them could have walked out of the storm. Some of those who are still stuck on Sanibel Island could get off the island if people could walk on water. We can't walk on water. And the disciples right here in that moment, again, are confronted with the power of God because not only is he walking on water, he's walking on stormy water. They can't row a boat. Jesus is walking on the water. Wow. Wow. Who who is this Jesus guy? (laughs) They're they're just confronted with it. And as he approaches the disciples, he gets near the boat. They're frightened. He knows that they're frightened. And what's he say to them? It is I. Do not be afraid. Don't, don't, Don't be afraid. They recognize that they are face to face with deity. And Jesus in that moment looks at them and says, Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. And immediately, they were glad. They were glad to take him in the boat. Why? Because if he can walk on the water and he can get in the boat with them, he can save them. He can deliver them from, at the moment, what their greatest need was, to be off the lake. And as he gets in the boat, it says, immediately the boat was at the land of which they were going, which is interesting as well it makes it again i think you can read a miracle there in verse 21 they're out in the middle of the lake jesus gets in the boat next thing they know they're on shore they're they're safe they're exactly where they were going 
So as, as we read these two miracles, and we get to the end, and we ask ourselves, what's the significance? Right? Are, are, are we just supposed to be amazed? I mean, I mean, I'm amazed. Are you amazed? I mean, I, I know what it's like to, to feed, you know, 20 people at Thanksgiving. I know how hard that is. I, I'm amazed. I would love to walk in there, the kitchen, and grab one potato and give thanks for that potato and have a whole bowl of mashed potatoes. Take some turkey, some Oscar Mayer turkey, and give thanks for that turkey and the big turkey appear on my table. I can't, I can't do that. Are, are, are we just supposed to be amazed? Are, 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 are we supposed to go, well, Jesus supplies our earthly needs in great abundance? Or, or Jesus calms our souls in the storms of life. Now, there, there is truth to all of those. At the same time, when I get to the end of these stories and I read that, I'm going, I don't, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be taking away. This is a sign. These two are signs. John put them in, in purpose. So let's put the puzzle pieces together. And the one, as we do this, let me just tell you what a couple of the pieces are. Chapter 5 ends with Moses. Moses is a witness. He says, Moses is going to testify against you. Then all of a sudden, in John 6, we have hungry people in a desolate place being fed immediately followed by Jesus walking on water to deliver his disciples. And in between, in verse 14, we are told that the people saw the sign that he had done, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. We got Moses. We got people in the wilderness being fed. We've got a water miracle. Is this ringing any bells to anyone at all? Because what we're seeing is that they are looking and they're going, wait a minute, back in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that there is a prophet that is to come. And so they see this miracle and they see it as a messianic miracle for what he has done and for what Moses did in the wilderness, right? They're linking all of Jesus' activities with the prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18. The one that Moses said would come. And through the years, Moses was revered by the people to the point that he was kind of set up as this ideal king and prophet. You know, the Messiah would look very much like Moses to the point that the people look at Jesus and say, hey, let's make this prophet, let's make this miracle worker king. Let's, let's crown him so that he can be king and lead us, just like Moses did. But there's great irony here. And, and, and here's the irony, right? Moses led them out of slavery and bondage only for them to end up back in slavery and 
bondage. It's not under the Egyptians, but this time it's under the Romans. And they are so completely focused on their physical bondage. They see Jesus, they see the miracles, they see what he's doing, and they say to them, our greatest need right now is to not be in bondage to Rome. Our greatest need right now is we need a king to come and overthrow the Romans so that we can live in freedom. And what does Jesus do? It says Jesus withdraws. He, he goes around. He sees what's in their heart. He knows what's going on. And he's leaving them. Why? Because he didn't come to solve their greatest need at the moment of physical freedom. Jesus came to solve their greatest need. Our greatest need, which is the spiritual bondage that we are to deliver us from that. Jesus doesn't care about Rome. That's not why he's there. He came to defeat sin and death, and he's not going to do that through a political rebellion. Jesus is going to defeat sin and death through the cross. And when he does that, Jesus then becomes the supplier of our most pressing, our most ultimate, our single greatest need that we have, and that is our salvation. And the signs in John 6 direct our attention to the truth that, yeah, what Moses did was great. What Moses did was great when he stood on the shore of the Red Sea and prayed and, and the winds were, drove the sea back. But Moses didn't really drive the sea back, did he? It was God. Moses was really great as he was leading the people through the desert, through the wilderness, and bread for them was prepared and, and, and people ate. But it wasn't really Moses, was it? It was God. And now all of a sudden, in John chapter 6, we see the one who, according to John 1.3, created all things, giving thanks for bread and feeding the people. We see the one who created all things walk on the water through the storm. The one who, come, who has come is greater than Moses because Jesus and Jesus alone is the one that can bring the ultimate and greatest deliverance that we need, and that is freedom from our sin. And it will only come through Jesus. It will only come through Him. There is no other way. And Jesus is standing there before them, and they, they miss it. They don't see it. Let's make Him king so the Romans won't rule over us. What happens then? What if another empire comes and rules over them? They're going to be right back where they were. Same with Moses. Right? Moses didn't give them their greatest need for all eternity, but Jesus can. Now watch this. This is how I want to end this morning. John 6, verse 12 says, They ate their fill. Okay? Real quickly. What is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels? not a trick question. What's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels? It's in John chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. Feeding the 5,000, thank you. I'm glad Carol was paying attention. All right. Listen to how the other Gospel writers record this. Matthew 14, 20. They all ate and were satisfied. Mark 6, 4, 42. 
They all ate and were satisfied. Luke 9, 17. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and they were satisfied. Moses provided food for the people and they ate, but were never told that they were satisfied. Never told that they were satisfied. And we can eat and we can be satisfied for a moment, but then that satisfaction is going to wear off. And we're going to eat again. Because Jesus provides a satisfaction that can't be found in food or any other earthly pursuit or pleasure. Matthew 5, 2 and 6. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. Why will they be satisfied? Because in Christ we have our greatest need satisfied. We have our salvation satisfied. So when you come and you read John chapter 6, it's not pointing to a prophet, it's pointing to the Messiah. It's, It's not pointing to an earthly kingdom but a heavenly kingdom. It's not pointing to a temporal king, but an eternal king, to the one and only Jesus Christ who satisfies our spiritual need now and for all eternity. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for our Lord, our God reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe himself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And the ones who are blessed to be invited to that marriage supper are the ones who are blessed because they hunger and thirsted for righteousness, and they found their satisfaction in Jesus The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.